Hello and welcome to Clappercast, a weekly discussion of all things cinema. I'm your host, Carson Tamar, and once again, I am joined by Alina Falds. Hello. And Paul Price. Hello. We have a lot to get through today. We have finally, after we talked about the nominations, we gave our predictions. We have the Golden Globe results. We have, count them, not one, not two, not three, but four films to talk about. We have a lot to do. Let's jump right into it uh, with possibly, I, I think this has a chance for best picture, if I'm being honest. Let's talk about Tom and Jerry. This hotel has been host to four presidents, three popes, two kings, and we're about to host the wedding of the century. Do you think you're qualified to take on this position? I shine under pressure, like a diamond. Or Rihanna. (laughs) One other thing. We have a mouse problem. In Tom and Jerry, one of the most beloved rivalries in history is reunited when Jerry moves into New York City's finest hotel on the eve of the wedding of the century, forcing Kayla, the event's desperate planner, to hire Tom to get rid of him. Uh, Paul, why don't you start us off with Tom and Jerry? What were your thoughts on this one? I was I was really disappointed. I was expecting this to be the dumb fun that I was hoping it would be, uh, maybe similar to the old Scooby-Doo movies. Um, but there are so many humans in this movie and all of them are very boring. And so the hijinks of the two leads, <laughs> which are Tom and Jerry, um, just don't really, I, I can't even specifically remember any moments that I go like, oh, that was, that was fun. Um, the only thing that I thought was kind of clever was instead of having them be uh, the only cartoons in a world of live action animals they did all cartoon animals that was unique that was something that i haven't seen before in these movies other than that it's it's not even particularly great for kids it's kind of disappointing yeah i also was not a very big fan of this i actually relate it very much so this week i rewatched the last airbender by m night Shyamalan, and i actually it's like a really relatable experience because i feel like whoever made this just hasn't seen tom and jerry yes you have that bit of slapstick but for some reason they really do just make tom like the hero i wanted him to kill jerry the entire time uh the animation solid in this time where like you get these live action like realistic sonic the hedgehog had that detective pikachu though i do like the animation in that um having these really good cartoon characters it was refreshing i like when they interact with the world they had that scene where they like tore apart the hotel room that was fun uh, but yeah, this is unfunny. It is very, very, very boring. Um, I, I don't know. I think kids will like it. There's enough like slapstick here to where it will probably be entertaining for them. But I just don't think this got the characters right. It was just, it was very confusing. Yeah, I ended up watching Tom and Jerry with my little sister while we were at work together. Because um, we used to watch like a lot of cartoons like Tom and Jerry and Looney Tunes and like all of those like cartoons in that realm with our mom. So it was disappointing based on like how much Tom and Jerry I have watched as like a child. Cause you're totally right that Tom felt very out of character. Like Jerry felt like himself, Tom didn't. Um, it was also neat that all of the animals were cartoon characters. I don't really understand the logic of that. Um, like it's very confusing to me that all of the animals are cartoons and then all the humans are like actually humans. Um, and like the plot itself of the movie is just like kind of boring and Tom and Jerry just like happen to get involved with this like um, celebrity wedding at a hotel. I'm just like, <laughs> I don't 
it's why it's just like such a stupid plot I don't understand why like all of these humans like needed to be involved when we could have watched Tom and Jerry just kill each other for two hours yeah. uh, and the villain Michael Pena is such a confusing character because he goes full-on villain and then the movie's like but he didn't and it's like no 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 there is no redeeming this character after what he's done and then he's like just chilling the rest of the movie and everyone's like sure there's no comeuppance for him and it's such a weird choice because that's part of what's fun in those movies is you know eventually someone has something bad happen everyone it, this ends up being one of those like nothing goes wrong for anyone except that uh poor British girl that gets her job stolen <laughs> she's kind of a bitch though like she was literally just looking down on Chloe Grace Moretz's character for wearing what a leather jacket get the fuck over yourself <laughs> I also like that she says it like she currently would be dressed for a job interview at any given moment <laughs> <laughs> Well, you should be in this um, economy. And I'll see what your guys' opinion on. The animation style really bugged me. The lack of shadows, um, I don't think worked how they thought it was going to. And they never, I never saw them living in the world. There never felt a heaviness to their characters. They felt like cartoons placed on top of live action. Like um, a specific moment where I really felt it was um, when Colin Jost is hanging out on top of the elephant and I never for once was like oh he's on this elephant I was like hmm I wonder how this rig worked that he's floating on top of <laughs> that they later CGI'd in an elephant it was never there's never something in it that feels consequential even like when um you know uh, their hijinks are happening everything that gets knocked over I constantly was aware it wasn't them doing it it was like production that they CGI'd over which mm -hmm is not something I usually catch or it think reminds about. You, it reminded me a lot of that like movie Looney Tunes back in action. Mm. I have not seen that in probably like 15 years, but I feel like even like that movie from like the early 2000s used the cartoon characters and the humans a little bit better from what, I, again, I watched that movie when I was six. So like, what do I, but <laughs> that, I don't know, just, and so like, maybe I just did not realize it because I was six, but it was just like bizarre seeing human characters interact with cartoon characters. Cause you can, well, and that's what, you can tell. I mean, I yeah, think well, you guys are missing the point, but like, they're not trying to pass these off as being real characters. Like very oh, no, clearly know, just cartoon. I, I had no issues with that because like it never asked you to suspend your disbelief. So like the fact that I was never able to, if anything, I was more impressed like that scene where they're destroying the room and how good it looks in my opinion. See, I guess that's using something like Scooby-Doo, which I think is like the, uh, the gold standard for these kind of kids movies. I hope you mean Scooby-Doo. Um, two monsters incorporated but yeah go off <laughs> monsters unleashed unleashed i just feel like they there wasn't something that made them exist in the world and i understand what you're saying with oh they're cartoons but there's something with that animation style and it's the lack of shadows it's the overall camera choices and things it never felt like they were there um in any capacity not even as cartoon characters which i feel like is a budget issue more than anything this feels just a little unfinished at points um, in terms of the animation style. But overall, like if a kid will get through it and not be bored, I guess it's doing what it's supposed to. But 
I doubt that personally. I mean, there were quite a few of the jokes that I remember chuckling at, and I can't remember any of them now. Um, and when I did watch it, like, a couple of days ago, I texted my friend who nannies, and I was like, the kids might like this, because there are, like, certain things that would be good for kids, and there are other points where I'm just like, hmm. It's just, the plot of this movie just seems to keep going, like, on and on and on, when it could have been, like, resolved at so many points, like, the wedding that's like happening just like keeps going wrong and that was just like very annoying to me because most of the thing that's going wrong is like not Tom and Jerry's fault it's just the like groom being really freaking annoying and the whole time I was like watching that couple I was like why is this girl with him it's god (laughs) defending the groom though she takes around this ring that's like supposed to be at least five hundred thousand dollars and takes it to so many places that she could have lost it any number of them. <laughs> I mean, people do that with wedding rings all the time, though. Like, you're supposed to be wearing on your, your like, wedding again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like it's it's definitely like makes sense that she would have it with her at all times because that's what you're supposed to do with a wedding slash engagement ring. Um, but like the fact that the groom was just like not listening to her. And like getting all this like extravagant stuff. I'm just like, calm down. Just because you're rich people does not mean you have to have this obnoxious elaborate wedding. Like riding elephants and all these things, like it's exhausting. And just <laughs> just freaking listen to your partner. You don't he just made me mad. He was just so annoying. Every time he came on screen, I was like, this guy is the worst part of this movie. I will say I like Chloe Grace Moretz. I think she was fine. She's good. I like her as an actress quite a bit. And she doesn't have a lot to play off of here, but I think she does a good job. Yeah, she definitely yeah, does d- a good job with what she has. I don't like Chloe, and I thought this was a good performance oh, for her. God. This is where she needs to stay in movies that I probably won't see more than twice. Okay, <laughs> You're well. willing to watch this movie twice? <laughs> <laughs> good on um, you. <laughs> I definitely am about to watch it again today because the family wants to watch it and they were like you watched it without us and i was like yes for the podcast <laughs> we have 27 days before it leaves hbo max i think so gotta get on it can't you didn't like the uh yeah Meta or like the miseducation of cameron poe she's so good no she's not but i'm glad she exists good for her existing <laughs> no she's not she's not one of my favorites i haven't liked her since she was a little kid she's like a kid now <laughs> so that's not good isn't she like 24 25 probably everyone is she's an adult woman now she is oh yeah she's 24 oh just celebrated her birthday happy birthday chloe paul doesn't like you that's fine (laughs) okay so transitioning on from tom and jerry i guess we can just stick with the streaming services from hbo max let's jump over to hulu let's talk about lee daniels the united states versus billy holiday don't you know who this is I was thinking of something more special. I'm downright flashy, you know. Ladies and gentlemen, Miss Billy Holiday. Reporters keep asking me, Billy, why you do the things you do? This is what I tell them. I love me. We love you. When I take off. NAACP says Billy Holiday is the voice of our people. I think we should integrate the audience for this show. Let's change it up a little bit. You know, blacks and whites sitting together. You know what you're getting yourself into when you decide to come on the road. Get out my goddamn clothes. I'm going to take everything except your bra and your man. <laughs> 
Which one of my songs is your favorite song? Strange Fruit. Yeah, it's a song about important things, you know. In the United States versus Billie Holiday, the Federal Bureau of Narcotics launches an undercover sting operation against jazz singer Billie Holiday. Paul, why don't you start us off here? I really like Precious. Um, it's one of my like go-to Oscar Beatty favorites. But uh, I really feel like Lee Daniels since then has really lost his way on like what he's trying to do. And I feel like he's constantly pushing for awards glory in almost everything he does and I haven't felt it more than in this particular movie it feels like it's half trying to be a really dark biopic about Billie Holiday and all of her struggles and then also be something about the you know anti-lynching uh civil rights issues but it just jumps between those so drastically that Every time it goes to her life, it feels more salacious. And every time it cuts to the uh, more racial equality issues, it really struggles to feel relevant a lot of times within the movie itself. It's just a really odd film overall. And I think Andrew Day does a great performance, but the movie's just very weak. Yeah, can't really argue with anything there. Um, not a big Lee Daniels fan, and I think this film, if I would say one word, it's just inconsistent in basically every part. Uh, the tone jumps around from comedy to drama to civil rights, uh, like capturing of this movement, and it just it doesn't work. Uh, everything this film tries to do has been accomplished in recent memory with something better. Uh, the turn was better in Judas and Black Messiah. The actual like social commentary about the civil rights movement was so much better and like literally a ton of other stuff. I will say I appreciate seeing kind of a unique angle on it. Uh, this like iconography of like a black woman having to go to jail and everything that she has to experience throughout jail and all those trials and tribulations like that's not something you traditionally see on screen normally it's more about black males going through that experience so like I appreciate how they change it up a bit there Andre Day is I would think quite good um, but yeah I mean the movie just it doesn't come together it has so many different like foot it has its feet in so many different pots and it tries to be so much that it ends up just being nothing. I don't know anything about like the actual Billie Holiday. Um, like I, I've no, I don't really listen to like jazz music. And the only thing I know about her is that she happens to be a jazz icon. So I was hoping like that this movie would tell me more about her. And it just felt like it was making her look just like a bad person. And was, I don't, it, like there are certain points when it like makes her out to be like a villain and it really struggle. It really focuses on her like struggles with like her drug addiction and all that. And I, it feels like that's all that she is at points. And it's really a shame because I was reading a bit about her after and I'm like, there's so many other things you could have focused on with her. Um, and I think she deserves a better biopic than this. And Andre Day was really good in this. She's the, I want to say, only good part of this movie. It is like a unique take on things, but I don't know if I was like Billie Holiday, I'd be like rolling in my grave over this and be like, what the fuck? It is, it is a pretty intense hit piece on a woman who's been dead for, you know, uh, over 50 years. Um, and it's odd that a lot of the choices just feel like how to make her a more complicated figure. Um, 
I've seen a lot of people referencing it uh, to Judy, uh, the movie that won Renee Zellweger um, the Oscar last year. And I think part of the reason Judy, although it's not a great film, either worked a little better is that we have an understanding of Judy Garland and like we're vaguely aware of the aftermath, but not really uh, fully explored. So that's why that movie was able to fit a specific, you know, uh, need the audiences have. With this, like you're saying, Alina, most people don't know much about Billie Holiday. So for their entry to be like, she's into drugs, she's a lesbian. It's just like, it felt very like, you know, the Daily Mail version of Billie Holiday at points. I think Judy's an interesting comparison because I love Judy. I think Judy, I really, really like Judy. But I think why it works is because it's showing all of her like flaws and stuff, but you see how she's overcoming and how she's dealing with the trauma from the past. And like it builds this very compelling narrative and makes her very likable despite her flaws. And you can kind of understand that. Billie Holiday, this film really doesn't paint that picture for Billie Holiday. It doesn't make it understanding why, you know, why is she on drugs? Why is she doing all this? Yes, you can say it's because of the stress of the rights movement blah 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 but like it doesn't create this compelling image of like understanding it doesn't do a good job causing the audience to feel sympathy for her it just does like it just has it be she's on drugs she's doing all this and it's just not a compelling like way to tell a story yeah it's very interesting how they connect the civil rights movements and specifically talking about lynchings to billy holiday through her song strange fruit um that's such like I listened to the song after um, and Andre Day's performance of it in the movie is very good. But anyway, it, it's, it's really interesting. But Lee Daniels makes a lot of graphic choices with, with showing like the lynchings, which makes sense because they are graphic and violent. But also it's very difficult seeing those images, especially when most movies about the black experience are about like terrible things like this. And we have to see these terrible photos over and over and over again. And like, again, I'm, I'm not black, but I've heard from a lot of people, like black people who've watched this movie and others that it's just, it's tiring to see these things over and over again. Yeah, that's how I felt when I was watching, well, when a lot of those images came up on the screen. And then at the end of the movie, when they're talking about how there's a bill going through whatever your United States government is, um, I can't remember if it was like the Senate or something, but there's like an anti-lynching bill going through like now that hasn't passed. And the fact that this movie has taken place like 50, 60 years ago when a similar bill went through and that hasn't happened yet, it's just so crazy. So I don't know, like, I don't like that we have to watch all those images over and over again, but at least it's relevant this time. Like that is freaking crazy that you guys don't have an anti-lynching bill. <laughs> As a Canadian, that is freaking nuts to me. God. Proud. It's called a frame, story. A, a frame, frame story? story. a yeah, frame story. A frame story. I've never heard of that. So a frame story basically. <laughs> Here, we're gonna get into a little lecture that and people who already knew what this was are gonna be so annoyed. Frame story basically <laughs> is where a narrative is inside another narrative. Um, so the frame story is her interview, and then the story that's told underneath is the narrative. It's just a way of telling stories. It's what like the Decameron does and Canterbury Tales and all that kind of stuff. But 
I don't think the interview is necessary whatsoever, except to show another racist white person, which I feel like we had gotten already. Um, so the whole interview was just really annoying. Also, the uh, actor was really, truly terrible. Um, <laughs> it was one of the worst performances in a movie, like full of kind of like bad performances across the board. Uh, people like Garrett Hedlund are just putting in like really basic work. Um, I was kind of disappointed with everyone who wasn't Andrew Day, which kind of leads me to believe Lee Daniels only focused on her performance at some point and just didn't care about anyone else because every scene without her feels very slow. Yeah, it's a shame because like there's other generally talented people in this movie. Like Trevante Rhodes is in this as uh, like an FBI dude and he was amazing in Moonlight and in this movie he's just like, okay, I'm here. I'm betraying Billie Holiday. That's all I'm going to do. And I'm just like, okay, like you're being wasted and that really sucks. <laughs> <laughs> well, moving on from that film, uh, I think another film that I think generally uh, we're not a huge fan of, let's go to Night of the Kings. Demain, dès que la lune rouge va sortir, tu devras nous raconter des histoires. Crois-moi, ce n'est pas un jeu. Set in an MACA prison, the aging Blackbeard, in an attempt to maintain control over his fellow inmates, resorts to a story ritual wherein one prisoner is forced to tell stories for an entire night. Uh, I'll start us off here. I did the review for Clapper back at New York. God, that feels like it was years ago, but I did rewatch the film. Uh, I think this is a good movie i think i would go that far i don't think it's amazing or anything um i think as a celebration of storytelling this is you know completely fine i think this movie works best when it's exploring the lore of this prison and the society within it um but ultimately i do think it just wanders a bit too much i think it is rather boring for a large portion of the screenplay um, and I just simply didn't really care about anything. Uh, this is one of those movies where since it's telling a story, it takes you to that story. I was just never interested in that. I was so much more interested in what was happening in the prison on the sides of this, what was actually happening as he was telling the story. And I just didn't care. Um, it felt, it, it's a good film, but I would say overall boring. And I would definitely not say my favorite from the best international feature shortlist or lineup this year. I ended up watching this at TIFF back in September and I didn't get the chance to rewatch it. Um, but honestly, I didn't really want to because I just don't see how this made the shortlist for Best International Feature. Like, it's a good effort. It's stylistically nice. The acting is fine. Like, it's just, it's nice to look at, but the story itself is boring which doesn't make sense because the movie is about storytelling. 
So you'd think they'd try and tell an actual good story and they just don't for some reason. This, this, this movie is definitely one that I've seen a lot of people mixed on. Like all of us like don't seem to like it. And on Letterboxd with the people I follow, I see, I, I see people like rating it anywhere from like one star to like five stars. So it does resonate with some people. For some reason, I just couldn't get into it. Yeah, I think it's interesting, actually. I'm completely the opposite uh, from Carson. I found all of the prison scenes to be really slow and um, uninteresting, but I did enjoy the short little narrative stories. But I also kind of enjoy that um, frame story uh, where it <laughs> uses, uh, you know, um, a situation for um, a bunch of, you know, smaller little interesting shorts. Um, I think I told you guys there was a point where, like, my mind started wandering, um, and <laughs> I focused back, and it's in the middle of a, you know, a magician's battle with elephants and everything. And I was like, wait, this is way cooler. So I had to go back and go check what was happening. Um, but every time it would show just him telling the story and the prisoners like doing the the motions and the performance all of that was just very like off-broadway play almost and it reminded kind of me just, of a greek chorus just yeah like hyping, but it was hyping people yeah up. it just never really worked for me i i just found the film just it there's nothing particularly memorable about it and i think that'll really hurt it coming up to the oscars but i do think cinematography wise shot design wise there was really interesting stuff and I think the director has like a future. I just don't think that this is the the calling card that I'm sure he was hoping it would be. I think it's generally surprising to look and see that it's only 93 minutes because it does feel like a full two hour feature in the worst of ways. Um, it, it feels it feels definitely long and definitely I don't know. I just was continually bored by this. I, I do think it is frustrating to see something like this get this platform when there's so many like every year I try to see as many international features as possible. And there's so many good ones that were submitted this year that didn't get the spot on the short list. And I think it's only because neon picked this up, which I don't really know why neon picked it up, but you know, go off neon. It's not quite as good as parasite, but you know, <laughs> we're not all not every film's going to be. Yeah. I, th- I think that the neon backing will push it to doing better, but it doesn't really make sense. It is a, it's a low budget feeling film i wish there was more that there was to say about it because i did find all of it very pretty to look at out of the movies we're talking about that was the one that i was like oh cinematography is great in this but the actors for the most part feel a little a little rough around the edges it just very it's not his first effort but it feels like a great great first effort film it feels like neon is kind of becoming like a new a24 where people will hype up neon films just because it happened to be picked up by neon. That's what this feels like to me. And yeah, I that, think that's that... largely because of Parasite, which is fine. <laughs> uh, I, I think we're also forgetting that they also had Portrait of a Lady on Fire. So yeah. that one-two punch really pushed them to where it's like, oh, we're the international you know, people. I'm guessing they won't have the returns that they were hoping for this year but 
I mean, they've had a wild year just going through. The Lodge I really liked. Big Time Adolescence was fine. Spaceship Earth I did not like. Uh, Painter the Thief didn't see. Shirley, good. Palm Springs, good. She Dies Tomorrow I fucking hate. You Cannot Kill David Arquette, fun. Possessor was good. Totally Under Control, good. Bad Hair didn't see. Omnite was shit. Naturno was shit. Dear Comrades, okay. Gunda was shit. Killing of Two Damn, Lovers was like good. All movies, shit. <laughs> and Night of the Kings, not good. So like, it's been a rough. It's not been a a, a plus year from them. Uh, Possessor was one of my favorite films last year. So I mean, good on them there. But I also love a good dark horror story. It'll be interesting to see where they move forward if they'll continue with um this big push into international. God, last year was so good. They had Apollo 11. They had Loose. They had Monos. <laughs> they had Parasite. They had Portrait of Blade on Fire. They had Clemency. Fuck. That was a good year for them. I'm looking at, and out of the ones I did see for this year, I, they were fine, but they definitely don't live up to last year. But like, how can you live up to Parasite and Portrait of a Lady on Fire? Yeah, that was a good one-two punch. But it will be interesting. Same with A24, which Neon is more of the overall kind of awards baity one and then i guess uh h4 is becoming more of the film twitter indie kind of cred because none of their movies for the most part have been getting really much awards nod isn't that weird though because yeah. like they won best picture like they clearly can do it when they have a good campaign they just stop giving films good campaigns it's very mm-hmm. weird let's talk about, bizarre. Let's talk like... about sony classics <laughs> They okay. The weird thing about A24 is that they like just pick like one thing and really like ride the shit out of it and ignore everything else. Like I love Uncut Gems, but last year it really felt like Uncut Gems was like their baby when there were so many other things that they had that were just as good. It's their marketing team. A24 is more of like a marketing team than and like movie distributor at this point. Yeah. But only for, like you said, like one or two films they have. They have a ton of yeah. films here. They just never actually push them. I'm just like, why? I want to talk to their marketing team. I'm just like, like <laughs> why? And like, well, that's they were all very I want to ask them. I also think, <laughs> not, close. you know, we don't need to fully get into it here. And I've mentioned it before on the podcast. I think you can definitely look at each film they select each year to like push and see a theme where they don't tend to go despite moonlight being like this really beautiful celebration diversity they tend to go with the safer wider option a lot of the time i think they did like waves the last black man san francisco they just did those dirty i mean waves was terrible oh waves was great only the only people who like waves are white people period (laughs) oh well i i don't like waves um, I don't like anything he does, though. I found all of his uh, Schultz's movies to be a little pretentious. It Comes at Night was fine. Like, it wasn't anything amazing, but it was good, fine. I think Night of the Kings, I would have enjoyed it more if I had the opportunity to watch it in the theater. Because typically, mm-hmm. when the cinematography is good, you can get blinded by that by watching it in a theater. But when you're at home and you're watching it at a festival or, like, on your computer or whatever the hell, it's so easy to get distracted and in this movie, it's one where it's very easy for your mind to wander, even though it's in yeah. a foreign language. Because normally, I feel like I really pay attention to foreign language movies because you have to read the subtitles. But like with this one, I was like, eh. yeah, it it was that was fine. 
you know what? I will say that that is a movie, if I saw it in a festival, I think I would have enjoyed it more as just like a, oh, here's, um, you know, a random movie to watch versus putting it on the pedestal of the Oscar shortlist and, um, you know, choosing it for the podcast and all those things that like kind of hyped it up to where it was just kind of disappointing when I eventually watched it. Yeah, because um, being on the podcast with Tom and Jerry, you know, we just have such a standard. The plot is not like obvious by 45 minutes in. You're still watching the movie going, what is this about? And that's really hard to, you know, and that's a difference for us American audiences who are used to first act, second act, third act. But that first 45 minutes are brutal for your, you know, ability to focus because you don't even know where the plot's leading to in any regard see for um, that for that reason i actually disagree with you that this would work better in a festival circuit because i think I, I i wouldn't know if i don't think i enjoyed it more just because i knew what to expect and i knew it wasn't going to be anything amazing but i think this works better outside the festival circuit because when you're in a festival mindset or just award season in general you have so much that you're watching in such a short amount of time and so much of it typically is quality that when something like this doesn't really hook you and it doesn't really leave an impact it feels instantly forgettable and immediately your brain just kind of checks off and you think about, Oh, I'm going to watch, you know, French X or whatever next to New York. I watch. So like, I actually think this works better outside of festival circuit because it simply like does not demand your attention. And I find for me personally in that circuit, like from October to December or maybe September to December, if you don't demand my attention, it's very hard for me to kind of give you the time of day. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Cool. Well, talking about A24, why don't we transition to our last film of the day? A24's big push, probably because it's like the only film that came out this year, really, from them. Uh, let's talk about Minari. David, look! They're wheels! Wheels? Where are they? Where are they? Where are they? Where are they? What a wonderful day to be in the house of the Lord. If you're here with us for the first time, please stand. What a beautiful family. Glad you're here. How's your daddy like that new farm? He growing things good, doing things right. Yes. In Minari, it's the 1980s, and David, a seven-year-old Korean-American boy, is faced with new surroundings and a different way of life when his father, Jacob, moves their family from the West Coast to rural Arkansas. Uh, uh, blah, blah, blah. Alina, why don't you start us off here? What were your thoughts on A24's Minari? Uh, I really enjoyed Minari, and I'm happy I did, um, because it seems most of my friends didn't like it. I was like, why? I thought it was fun. My dad happened to come and visit me yesterday and I conned him into watching it with me because I told him it's about farming in rural Arkansas and he has like a hobby farm and he also loves um, Arkansas because a lot of his favorite singers are there. Anyway, that's a tangent we don't need to get into. Um, so I mostly wanted to watch it with my dad because I wanted to hear his like farming opinions on it, which is bizarre, but like I had a good time watching it. He had a good time watching it shocked that that white man managed to sit through a movie that's almost entirely in Korean like good for Bruce um yeah I really enjoyed Minari the family that happens to move to Arkansas I thought they had a really like cute dynamic Alan Kim who plays David the little boy is so 
freaking cute. I wish his older sister had a little bit more to do. Um, the relationship and the strain between the parents is also very interesting. The, the mom, Monica, for example, she's really unhappy that they happen to move to Arkansas because they're like living in a trailer. They work as chicken sexers, which is bizarre. Um, but, you know, I kind of wish, I really hope that those little chicks are okay and did not like actually die. Um, Cause you know, as a vegan, I was like these poor little baby chicks, so no. Um, the grandma in this movie I found that interesting because like David he's like seven and he his grandma comes from Korea to like take care of them while their parents are working and he doesn't like his grandma at first and then eventually he like warms up to her I found that pretty relatable because I had a bit of a strained relationship well all of us have a pretty strained relationship with one of my grandmas because she's kind of like nuts and like dramatic I really hope she doesn't listen to this Diana, don't listen to this one. I'm sorry. I love you now, but she were crazy as like uh, as a child. So I don't know. I found this movie incredibly relatable, even though I'm not Korean nor grew up farming. It just has happened to be something that like I know of now. I I, I really liked it. That's why I'm rambling so much. <laughs> so going back to what I said about Night of the Kings not working in the festival like award circuit uh, Minari the first time I saw it was at like 10am for a film festival and I just did not dig it so I rewatched it I was excited too because everyone loves this film and I'm positive on it I think it's the best film we're talking about today by far but I don't think that really says much um, it's, it's a good film it, it, it never really hooked me or never went to that next level I think the family dynamics works like I did care on a very basic level about these characters um, and I think you know there is at least something here to say about you know achieving your dreams and when is it best to stop and when is it best to reconsider what you're doing and like I, I think there's a basic level of interesting you know conversation here and quality but it never reached that next level till I really felt like it hit me emotionally um, or was that memorable. Uh, the acting is good. You know, the characters are good. The kid is really, 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 really cute. I don't know if anyone saw He just got on Twitter, like a message from Ben Schwartz doing the Sonic like voice because he said his favorite actor is Sonic. That was adorable. And he was like all was smiles. So it was so cute. Um, other than like a very basic though, like, yeah, it's a cute movie. Um, I can't say this did much for me, which is annoying because everyone loves this film and I want to love this film, but I just, I don't. I am with you, Carson. I don't love this film, but I, <laughs> I don't love it aggressively. Um, not aggressively, but I just, I found it to be another slow movie. Uh, and I think the question of the grandmother really uh ends up <laughs> I think I told you guys it feels like she you know the son and the wife actually are kind of right she does there's some things that happen at the end of the movie that are directly her fault and it's one of those things that kind of bugs me in these movies where it's like the characters that are supposed to being portrayed as the uh the bad characters end up kind of <laughs> being correct but because of the miracle of family they're still in the wrong that's a trope that really bugs me and it bugs me in this um i think it's a very nice movie to look at it's pleasant but i don't particularly i don't think there's anything really memorable in it 
Um, if I'm going to choose between this and Nomadland, which feel very similar to me, I go with this, but that's a, you know, both of them don't do much for me. I do think that there's um, interesting things that the director will do next. Um, and I think all the cast is great. So I hope they do stuff, but it's just, it's particularly slow film for me. And Minari definitely feels, it's a slice of life film. And that is an interesting choice purely based on the setting the movie happens to take place in. Because they don't really, like they're, they're mainly focusing just on like the farm and whether the farm is going to be successful or not. But they're also like happened, they're Koreans in Arkansas. And I think that could have been like an interesting thing to explore because Arkansas is like extremely, extremely white and they never really like touch on that at all because like the Yi family uh, just like keeps to themselves, which is really bizarre because in like farming communities or at least where like I grew up and live, the farmers are all like helping each other, whether it be like lending tractors or like tools or advice or contacts and they don't that doesn't it doesn't happen in this movie which I understand why because the interesting thing about the Yi family and what they decide to do in Arkansas is they're not like just farming like any other person in Arkansas would they're farming like Korean vegetables because they think that because there's so many Koreans immigrating to the United States that they'll always have like clients and stuff to sell to, which it's very niche and kind of odd to think about just for like, just based on my very limited farming knowledge that I've gathered from my father. I mean, there are so many places where this film could really find like a purpose and find a deeper, like emotional moving message, not just them having to deal with being Koreans in this very white, like rural America, but the dysfunction from this family in multiple aspects, but they just never go that like heightened sense of drama. I think it really should have, not that it would be similar plot wise, but something like the farewell. Yes, it is a slice of life. You're capturing this very emotional moment, but it's a heightened sense of drama, heightened sense of emotion. It goes that next next step into being memorable and being important and being impactful this film just is so passive and so it just never has that big moment and not that every film needs to a lot of great great films never have that big emotional climax but i just think this needed something more and there's so many areas where it's so obvious it seems like here's where you do that and it just doesn't i was going to say the reason i say it would have been interesting to explore like I don't know, race in Arkansas is because I, a couple months ago, I read this book about Levon Helm, who is like uh, the drummer and singer for the band. And he grew up in Arkansas. And there are quite a few points in like the book when they talk about, um, granted, this was like the 50s. So it's about like 30 years earlier. But I don't think Arkansas would have changed that much um, just purely for race relations. It's like they talk a lot about um segregation and all these things especially with like African Americans and and white Americans and I don't know it's just and also like I grew up in a very like white farming town as like a brown person and that's always something that has like very much affected me even though like my family has like kept themselves just like the Yee family in this but like it's very hard to avoid those things when people like don't like you and like I feel like I'm kind of shitting on Arkansas, but 
it's just like it's a known thing that they're kind of shitty people to people that aren't white and I'm just like why it's it's bizarre it's a bizarre choice to me just based on my own experiences I will say defending Arkansas since where my family is from uh, (laughs) that as a whole there might be but the group that they hang out with which is like their church and everything that usually is pretty how those characters acted for the most part did feel a little like this is how they are in church groups Uh, as a whole church groups in the south are pretty open it's when you're outside of those church groups that things can hit but that family never really interacts with those people yeah so i do think that in that way um overall the arkansas aspects of the movie don't really come through it could just be anywhere um arkansas is um very low education style um all these people did not seem like that (laughs) you know uh, when i go and see my family there it's a it's a big change from the rest of the u.s um but they're all very sweet people but i didn't like watching it i never went like oh yeah like my uh my grandma's house probably is around where this movie was set. Um, and there was nothing about the feel of it that I felt like I'll watch a movie from Texas and I feel like, oh yeah, I'm back in Texas or California or anything like this. This didn't feel like Arkansas. And um, I don't know the director's background, but I don't think he has a strong connection to Arkansas. He grew up um, in Arkansas. The like Minari did he is really? Like, it's semi-autobiographical. That's why I'm so confused about this whole Arkansas thing. <laughs> it doesn't. It doesn't. Like it doesn't feel like yeah. Arkansas to me at all. Um, and I, um, yeah, he grew up like, on a small farm in rural Lincoln, Arkansas. He's from Colorado. That's, that's why insane. I'm talking so much about Arkansas because they don't like. It doesn't feel like there's a connection, even though there's supposed to be a huge connection because essentially the Lee Isaac Chung is supposed to be David but like this it could be anywhere it could the it, it could be anywhere but yeah it's it's odd that he should have a huge connection to Arkansas it just doesn't feel like he does I agree okay so actually I'm curious who is supposed to be the big push right now for um best supporting actress is it the grandmother or is it yeah, supposed to be it's the grandmother okay Yunyun Jun I, I believe her name is yeah um interesting choice um because i thought the uh woman who played monica the wife had the uh flashier of the two performances um but i guess this is you know a push for a unique older actress um who's like it feels similar to the push for uh farewell when there were uh, other performances that I thought were better, but it's the the grandma that everyone connects to. That's what I was just about to say. Yeah. I, if she, I feel like she had more buzz than the the grandma from Minari does, and if she couldn't make it in, I don't think the grandma from Minari is going to make it in. Though I mean, she's showing yeah. up a lot of places, so like she's not. It's not dead in the water. I just I don't know if I feel confident in predicting her. And before we go any further, let's hear a word about the sponsor for today's episode. Okay, and we are totally at the exact same recording time that the rest of this podcast is. Um, Golden Globes just ended literally minutes ago. 
and it was a long show, but we're going to give our thoughts before we go into the movies. Why don't we just like generally talk about, is there anything you want to talk about from the television categories, any speeches, looks, wins that really stood out to you at all? I thought Rosamund Pike's like red tool dress was really iconic because she's also wearing combat boots, I think with it. I, I really liked Anya Taylor-Joy's green dress. Um, who was that girl with the like lime green? Uh, I believe it was, uh, oh my God, why am I? Uh, yeah, I'm blanking too. Uh, Cynthia Rivio. Oh yeah, that was terrible. Horrible. But like kind of iconic in a terrible way. Yeah. Um, Walking I Phoenix with the animal cruelty sweater. Iconic. Love that. Love that. I think uh, we need to talk about our man, Jared Leto. Colt did not okay. come through. We'll talk about that in a second. But like, <laughs> I was not a fan of the plastic flower. I liked it. I thought it was campy. Um, big fan of the mustache. The mustache, yeah, it was a good mustache. Yeah, solid. But I don't know if like it really was, or I've just talked about this man and now I'm like looking into <laughs> his eyes and he's like seducting me into his cult. Like I don't know I what think is happening. The cult. Every time I talk about him, I get more and more positive about him because it I started know. with the little things where I was like, I hate him, and now it's like I genuinely like was <laughs> excited when he came on screen. <laughs> His knitted turtleneck is also kind of everything. Um, yeah, I think there was. Oh, I also like Amanda Seyfried's dress. Seyfried, Amanda Seyfried, her dress yes. is cute. I think that's it out of uh, memorable things. I, I will say I don't really follow TV, so none of like the wins here really stood out to me that much. Good night for the crown. I guess Josh O'Connor. I like him, so good on him. Mm -hmm. uh, John Boyega, good on him. Yeah, I'm happy he won for Small Axe. I'm disappointed Small Axe didn't win. Yeah, I do but... love like Steve McQueen had to sit there directing like, you know, five really great, important, socially relevant movies. And they're like, no, the kind of shitty series about chess is better than that. I think so. It's <laughs> like, pretty iconic. Yeah. Paul, did anything stand out to you when it came to TV? No. I mean, I guess Ted Lasso not winning was surprising. I was expecting that. Um, I think think if I really go through this I'm not happy about a single win <laughs> across the entire board <laughs> yeah I'm gonna have to like really check it but I think every single choice was bad <laughs> throughout the night you just kept saying like oh as long as it's not this person and then they would yeah, win and it was and then it was the person <laughs> it was not good it's like you jinxed it <laughs> Well, jumping... It specifically feels like these 87 people were just mad at me. <laughs> well, we did make fun of, I think we've made fun of them on the podcast. So it's possible they listened and they were like, we're going to fuck with these people. Not me, though. Yeah. Like, I've not like... made fun of the Golden Globes. I love the Golden Globes. Golden Globes are family. Golden Globes is my best friend. Yeah. <laughs> Except for tonight, which also, they just really betrayed me. What a great statement. They all came out on stage and they were like, we're sorry that we've been racist for years and decades, but like, we promise we're going to get better. That was pretty. Jane Fonda's <laughs> was better. Well, yeah. Yeah. But like, uh, obviously it's Jane Fonda. So moving on to the film categories, we don't necessarily need to touch on everything. I'm just going to go through and name them. And if something really stands out to you, uh, feel free to jump in. We have Minari for best foreign language film, best animated film went to soul best original song went to scene from the life ahead. Uh, Diane Warren fuck off. I don't like that song. I don't like that movie. So just go away. Best original score went, went to Sal or Sal. Sorry, it went to Sal officially. Um, 
not soul. That was a, I don't know how you read the normal like word for soul and say Sal, but go off. Uh, best screenplay went to Aaron Sorkin for the trial of Chicago seven. What a surprise. I know. Right. Who could have, who could have seen this coming? Uh, David Fincher taking a shot right as the winner got announced was a big mood. I thought he also took a shot for the best director one. I saw that. That's good. He's, I he's like that he's keeping right. he's keeping the drunk Golden Globes tradition alive. Good for him. No one else did. They had the a I dumb know. ass like eight minute skit of them being drunk, and it was like, okay, that's not funny. But like, mm-hmm. where was the trashiness? It was a very like up like professional award show. It felt like which it was tame. Is, yeah, yeah. Best director went to Chloe Zhao for Nomadland. Quite actually shocked there. Uh, I really thought Aaron Sorkin was going to take it, mm-hmm. um, but. We can talk about that also with the best picture once we get there. Best supporting actor. We started the night. Jared Leto did not win. It went to Daniel Kaluuya for Judas and the Black Messiah, which good on you. Love the performance. But also tragic. Yeah, it was. Happy it wasn't (laughs) Sasha Baron Cohen, but like Jared Leto, the cult did not come through. What we learned. We need more, more cult. We need a bigger cult next time. And we're going to do it, Jared. Yeah. Uh, Best Supporting Actress, Jodie Foster for The Mauritanian. Uh, what? <laughs> Did not see this one coming, I'll say. I'll say number one, yeah. Cute Dog. But um, thought it would be Glenn Close yeah. or Olivia Coleman. Yeah. Overall, so many of these felt like people choosing their third option. Mm-hmm. Um, like they assumed one would win, so they voted for the additional one. Mm-hmm. Um. Because across the board, you would be like, oh, that's a shock. That's a shock. And that's kind of the thing with the Golden Globes. It's kind of known for that. But this year specifically, it was just like, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I also do feel like the controversies did change some of their votes in the the last couple minutes. There were a few that seemed pretty out there. Uh, yeah. I agree. Uh, another surprise of the night, Best Actress, Rosen Pike, Fry, Carolot, as we mentioned, incredible outfit, but didn't see that one coming. I'm really curious to see, like, is there a chance now, like, Pike possibly goes on to get an Oscar slot? What about Jodie Foster? Um, there's quite Andrew Day for Best Actress jumping over to the drama category. These surprises. Oh, a big surprise. Yeah. It's really hard with Golden Globes because you never know. Because like a lot of times it's pretty irrelevant what they pick, even if it's out of left field. But like sometimes it matters and it's just weird, especially this year. I feel like, go ahead. I was going to say, I saw people on Twitter saying that with like Rosamund Pike winning for this, it's like a late award for Gone Girl. Like maybe we'll just pretend it's for Gone Girl for the Oscars. Um. I think that this year specifically, there are so many odd choices that it won't have the impact that something, uh, a one, like a one big shock would. Um, like, say, if Carrie Mulligan or Frances McDormand had won for best drama, then Rosamund Pikes would stand out more. But since both her and Andre Day got in, um, I think that they'll kind of negative each other out in terms of like publicity because both will be considered shocks. And so we won't see one coming up as a front runner. (sighs) Andrew Day could pull a Harriet kind of situation where it's the only performance that's pulled out of a movie that's just okay. 
but I don't really see it. There's so much this year um, in terms of because they didn't shortlist her song. So not like Harriet got that double nominee for Cynthia Revo. Uh, she won't, but that's it's just weird because you then see like, oh, it probably doesn't have industry support. Then it wins Golden Globes, so it's like, well. But I think especially with uh, musical or comedy, I don't think uh, anyone's coming out of that. Uh, maybe there will be a bigger bump for um, Borat, but I think um, Bakalova not winning really screws that. Um, yeah. I think other than like makeup, that was their one chance. And that w- loss is huge considering it won actor, best picture. Like how she missed that is really kind of wild. It it must just be Roseman Pike's just really well liked because it's not a it's not a movie or a performance that uh, seems to have stuck out. Moving on to the actors we have for comedy and musical, uh, Sasha Baron Cohen, as I mentioned, for a Borat subsequent movie film. Chadwick Boseman did, in fact, win from Ma Rainey's Black Bottom for drama. Wasn't Anthony Hopkins, um, which I was, you know, I was sad about, but good on Chadwick. Great speech, I thought, by his wife. Very, very emotional. Um, definitely, I think, is going to help, like, make it where people want him to win again so that she's going to give another speech. Mm-hmm. Um, and then best pictures, we had musical and comedy, Borat subsequent movie film, and best drama. I'm happy about it because it was my favorite film of 2020, Nomad Land. If you listened last week, uh, probably won't be shared by Paul, but I enjoyed it, so I'm I'm of course happy with that. Yeah, no, uh, Nomad Land should never win another thing. Period. Um, uh, but like I was saying to you guys, it is good that now we have the Oscar villain, and it is Nomad Land. That is what we <laughs> needed. You. Um, it will go full force and you will start seeing a lot of hot takes about why no Land is bad actually. And every single one is right. Don't care what they say. But that does not Far necessarily mean it won't find best picture success because you historically it's not, that's definitely not a like. Yes, but there fine. is. Okay. There is a difference that I think between the Golden Globes and the Oscars that causes some weird Oscar movies to win um, surprises is the ranked voting. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that more people will dislike Nomadland than dislike something like Trial of Chicago 7. Um, I'd be really surprised if Nomadland is that universally loved. In a pure theater setting where all these people are seeing it, maybe, but watching it on TV is a completely different experience. And I don't see a lot of those Oscar voters I agree dealing with, with it. I agree with that to a point because I've argued since it premiered at TIFF, it's not going to win a Best Picture because it's not at all an Oscar movie. But then you also have the Netflix bias possibly with Trial of Chicago 7. Plus you have plenty of people against that. I think very clearly when you watch Golden Globes and the online reaction, that was one of the major like villains of the night was Trial of Chicago 7 once at one screenplay. So like, mm-hmm. I, I do think it's interesting. Trial of well, Chicago 7 true. is definitely safer, but there is that Netflix bias. I could see them in this time where theaters are literally like fighting for survival. They just want to give it to one that didn't go just to a streaming service. But it did go just to a streaming service. We all watched it on Hulu. Yes, but it did have a theatrical <laughs> run. Yeah. I mean, fair. An IMAX run even. Uh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah, they had a one-week IMAX run for it. Oh, 
I just think it's nice that Chloe Zhao won Best Director because she was apparently the second woman ever and, like, the first one since, like, fucking 1984. That's insanity. So, I don't know. I could see it going all the way to the Oscars purely because, you know, you should really get some more diversity in there because it makes us look good. Do you guys think there's any number three that's kind of in the conversation at this point? Or do you think it's just down to Nomadland and Trial? I thought Mank was up there, but after tonight, I don't think that we, anymore. Because it didn't we can't win use, anything. We can't like use just Golden Globes in general right now. Yeah. Um, I I think Mank could have a... It really depends. We're going to see it once the nominations hit. Um where people's yeah. brains are um i if a bunch of technicals pop up for some weirder ones editing um i could see um i think it, the father losing as bad as it did really hurts it um this was i thought like the place where the father would like it needed this or it wasn't a contender really i mean still it might be a, a nomination contender but not like a winner for best picture at least yeah um i don't know it's so funny because uh, 87 people shouldn't be you know indicators of anything um but they are um more than something like the critics choice awards or anything like that so i don't know it'll be interesting uh, any last thoughts on the ceremony overall? I thought technically, other than the first guy who uh, was won- winning an award, I thought technically this ran incredibly smooth for the most part, especially the actual monologues that took place in two different cities. I thought those went really smoothly. Um, it was long, too many commercials, but you know, that's just kind of, it's an award show. And also too many bits. Mm. I'm just very tired of Tina Fey and Amy Poehler. I'm sorry. You know, I didn't like Barb and Star, but when they came out, I was kind of happy. Because I was like, oh my god, so many different. Because they hosted so many freaking times and tired of it. We should have had Barb and Star host. Yeah, I mean, that would have been yes. amazing. We're, we did a Actually, video yeah. during the Golden Globes just hanging out. And Paul's face with Barb and Star, he had like this <laughs> sorrowful, like sad face the entire time. As soon as they came up, it lit up like a kid on Christmas. <laughs> um, yes, because Barb and Star is the only good thing right now. Um and also they i i love that the golden globes acknowledge the fact that they are currently being robbed of any chance of demolishing the golden globes <laughs> and i really think it would have been different if this movie had come out what like two weeks earlier yeah. two three weeks earlier mm-hmm. i think you would have seen a bunch of different winners um but that's my personal belief that i will stick with till i die um, I think that's all I've got on this. I don't have anything else. It's yeah. a bad year. Alina. Bad, terrible yeah. year. I don't it have it actually wasn't that. Like, I like, think that's one of my biggest takeaways is that this wasn't the dumpster fire that so many people were anticipating. At least, you know, I'm sorry for you, Paul. But I think so many people were really anticipating this, like, tear apart film tour and be horrible. Hillbilly Elegy and Trial of Chicago 7. And it really wasn't. I yeah, don't, I mean, like, I'm not mad about anything. Mad. I'm not mad about anything. I'm not mad really about mad. anything, but none of these movies feel like, like, okay, I remember when La La Land versus Moonlight happened and that like whole, uh, not the end of that, but the whole time leading up to that, these two movies. And I was like, okay, these both have 
different appeals, but I can both see that they're good movies. A lot of these movies just don't have any spark to them. I would agree to me. And I feel like we're just looking at a whole list of movies that's like, sure, fine, whatever. And what's interesting is this is like the most amount of movies um, submitted to the Oscars since like, I forgot what, the 70s or something like that? Like, we're not, (laughs) we're acting like there's like this dearth of movies. No, this, in a non-COVID world, this is the exact same lineup and it's bad. (laughs) Um. I think it's just fine. It's it's terrible and you're young. I dislike a lot of, (laughs) like, I've never disliked more films in award season. I agree. Even last year, you had like 1917 and Parasite. Like there is, but I also wonder how much of that is just because we didn't have the theatrical experience and we didn't have like the real experience with any of these films. Though also like, I don't think it's fully that to be very, very clear. I think this is just a weaker crop of films. It's also because a lot of the, so much stuff was delayed yeah like the french dispatch for example that's oh, probably yeah. what it got yeah okay to be fair out. the the movies that would probably be here are the ones that are like fun um mm. west side story french dispatch uh dune yeah. even maybe um like, anything that like has an enjoyment to it is definitely just not here yeah mm-hmm. these are this we'll is a dour lineup We'll see you next year. Just we're looking forward to 2022. Let's go. Is there, okay, but wait, is there a single movie running for Best Picture that has any sort of like positive, I guess Minari, that's it. It's the only one with like a positive outlook on the universe. Oh, on the universe. Uh Maybe Mank. I don't know. It just feels like all these movies are just sad about very sad people. Trial, uh, or I mean, Promising Young Woman, like kind of, kind of. Oh yes, the very inspiring film, Promising Young Woman. <laughs> At the end, it, it ends on the like a you know decent note, decent enough. He gets note. suffocated to death. Curses. Okay, I'm sacking, but after that, when the police <laughs> after her the people get what her. they deserve. Okay, after she, the, her body was okay. After, but oh, okay. The so only reason. Okay, this the prom. Is so you know what the prom? The prom had a great outlook on life. Is it proved that even James street- Corden was robbed? Yeah, <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I am so happy for Sasha Baron Cohen. That was a joke. Yes. That was a joke. Uh, no Hamilton. Good. <laughs> Your favorite film? Really <laughs> surprised. It's not that. a film. <laughs> it's gonna be released theatrically. It is a. I consider Hamilton a film. But. I highly disagree. Good for you. No one else does. <laughs> the Golden it, Globes it do, you know? And Listen, hey. <laughs> I could have filmed a better version of Hamilton sitting in a seat on Broadway with my iPhone. It's nothing special. Yeah. <laughs> Neither is Hamilton. Let's just put that out there. Okay, let's Hamilton switch to the positives. Nothing no one, nothing for music. <laughs> that was good. Nothing for music. Good. You know? <laughs> um, yeah, but I would have enjoyed the controversy. Yeah, so. Kate Hudson had way too many people in her living room. Oh, yeah. It's like, I don't think all those people live with you, Kate Hudson. Yeah, Kate but Hudson's Kate Hudson's music party has Golden the... Globe party is a super spreader event. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, I want to say it is so bizarre that like first responders are invited to things like the Golden Globes and the Super Bowl and whatever. Because like, I am not involved in healthcare in any way. But if I was and I was invited to the Super Bowl and the Golden Globes, I'd be like, mm, 
perhaps not because this is how you spread the thing I'm trying to like combat. It's fucking weird. Especially because even if you have the vaccine, you can still potentially get the virus in your system. And even if it doesn't affect you, spread it to other people like people at your work where you work as in a hospital where people are more at risk, but you know, maybe that's just me. Um, I do like that people online are saying that it was actually a really good night for Chicago seven because it won't become the villain that like 1917 did that probably sunk its best picture chances. And to round out Clappercast, we'd like to end on the crew's latest film recommendations. Um, I'll start this week for Uncut Gems podcast. We are talking about Glass. So I rewatched every single M. Night Shyamalan film from Praying with Anger to Wide Awake to all the horror ones to Last Airbender to The Happening. I I watched all of them and it was a not always fun experience. But my biggest takeaway was how much I love The Village. Uh, I know, I think, according to Letterboxd, Paul does not agree with this one. Uh, but I think The Village is a masterpiece. I think it is the best M. Night Shyamalan film. It's not a great horror film. It actually, comparisons to It Comes at Night as far as the marketing, not a great horror film. Uh, there's some horror elements, but as a romance, I think this is incredibly well-directed, uh, incredibly impactful. I think this is the best filmmaking-wise M. Night Shyamalan has ever been. Love this film. Uh, I think Paul fully agrees with the statement according to the face he's making right now. Um, I think this is a masterpiece. Go recheck out The Village. This needs recontextualized. I would go into more detail, but this will be a future episode on Uncut Gems. So I'm going to save it for then. Um, let's see what your recommendation was. Paul, if you think mine was so bad, what was your recommendation? Uh, I'm going to go with Now Voyager. Um, it's a 1942 movie with Betty Davis. Uh, it is very interesting. It's um, about basically a uh, frumpy sister um, goes to a mental hospital and then goes on vacation and her life is better for it. And I really appreciated that back in the 40s, there was just like a self-care movie. Um, Betty Davis is fantastic in it. But also the story is just really fun. I just enjoyed watching it. Um, it's definitely something to check out. Um, it pops up onto Criterion channel pretty regularly. Um, it just got off at the end of last month, but I'm sure it'll pop around at some point. They're constantly putting her movies on. Um, but overall, just a really fun movie it kind of reminded me of the dramatic version of something like barb and star which is just like you know uh sometimes you just need a refresher um so that'd be a great double feature now voyager barb and star elena what do you got uh my recommendation is in the mood for love i watched it last night um at the bytown cinema which happens to be one of the only two indie cinemas in Ottawa where I live and tragically is closing so right now they're doing their best of the Bytown final farewell week so I went and saw it in the mood for love for that um and it is the best movie I have seen in a very long time like I was looking through my letterbox and I can't remember the last time I gave something like five stars that wasn't like a childhood nostalgia rewatch and I'm so happy I saw this in theaters because it is a freaking beautiful movie. 
like this is my first Wong Kar Wai film um so I didn't know what to expect and I knew everybody loved it and everybody is right it is so good <laughs> it's freaking beautiful the cinematography is stunning there's like a recurring score that is so good the actors are great the like main woman in it her dresses are beautiful and just like the way he shows falling in love on screen it's just so freaking good and I know a lot of people have seen in the mood for love and it's also on a lot of people's lists because they haven't gotten around to it and I'm telling you if it's on your list just go and freaking watch it because it's it's amazing it, it lives up to it it's it's stunning okay I'm done <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for that both of you um, and that's going to be it for this week's episode of Clavercast. Where can we find everyone on social media? Uh, Alina, why don't you start us off? Uh, I'm at Alina Folds on Twitter and Letterboxd. Paul? At PriceLikeTag for Twitter and Letterboxd. And I'm on Twitter at BP underscore Movie Reviews. You can find me on Letterboxd, just Carson Tamar. And you can find all the latest releases of film and television reviewed on Clapper and find our social links on Facebook, Letterboxd, and Twitter. Make sure to rate, subscribe, and follow us to be notified when the next episode releases, which is every single Wednesday. Thank you all for listening. We'll be back next week to discuss all things cinema and possibly Disney Plus series. You'll see next week. See you then.